0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast with the UCLA Radio News Team. Hello and welcome to UCLA Radio. Today we are interviewing Joe Sestak. He is a presidential candidate and a former representative. Welcome to the show, Joe.
1: Uh, Jared, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me aboard.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. So why should UCLA students vote for you?
1: Because I truly have been in my entire career with the youth of America, come aboard an aircraft carrier that I commanded in my battle group for the war in Afghanistan. The 5,000 sailors there, their average age was 19 and a half. I lived with them. I went to war with them, and I learned from them because I value youth because they are not burdened with experience. They are willing to look at things differently differently. And that's why we have to cherish our national treasure, the youth of America. I mean, I can tell you how we're going to address student loans. I can tell you how for those who don't desire to go to post-secondary school, we're going to have training for a lifetime. But more than anything, what I appreciate is the youth of America and the older generation has to appreciate this because they've forgotten sometimes that the youth are willing to look at the same set of facts through a different prism and say, oh, here's a different way to accomplish it. And does America need that today more than ever before?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I know in my generation, a lot of students are focused. One of their main concerns are climate change and also student loans. So how would you specifically address that and bring the party together and even the two parties together to have a clear and concise answer on climate change?
1: And also to bring together the world, because I constantly remind everyone. That 85% of the greenhouse emissions that have to be brought to zero before that catastrophic bomb of climate change explodes on us come from overseas. And we can do the new green deal that has lofty goals, in it, but that alone will, not, will be insufficient. So yes, I support a, a carbon dividend, and I support transferring all the subsidies of fossil fuel over to green energy manufacturing. And I'd so much support uh, having us begin to do so many other items here at home. But most, I also say, we have to get the 194 nations of 196 who signed up for commitments in the Paris Accord back on track because though only two are meeting their national commitments. And then we have to fly. I want to fly out there the first day and say, look, we have to increase those national commitments. Because Saudi Arabia will use as much energy to power its air conditioning in 2030 as it exports in oil today. It's all of the world doing it or nothing, Jared. And that's my emphasis from my global experience of 31 years in the U.S. Navy.
0: How has your experience in the Navy shaped you as a leader? And how has that given you the knowledge to lead other countries?
1: I came to the recognition during those 31 years of the military. But also by serving as President Clinton's director for defense policy, where I brought together for President Clinton the administration's national security strategy that America's greatest power is its power to convene, to bring the other, other nations and peoples of the world for a common cause that serves us all. And so kicking our allies and leaving them bruised and coming home behind walls like this administration is doing and thinking we're going to be great again, we were great. When we convened the world to win the third world war of the last decade, the Cold War without a shot, because we convened the world to deter having a third world. We've been great because we've been able to have allies and friends that we brought together to bring, since the end of World War II, extreme poverty from 65% down to 7% today. That's how we make the world more peaceful and more prosperous for everyone. And that's why, Jared, the sculpture closest to the Oval Office is not of an American. It's of the foreigner, the French General Rochambeau, who stood beside George Washington and commanded French and American troops to help win our battle of independence. And in recognition that we won our American freedom only with the aid of an ally, and we can only maintain it with friends and allies, We have consciously placed closest to the commander-in-chief where he works or where the the president works, one and the same, a sculpture of a foreigner to remind them we need allies and friends to protect us, to enhance our prosperity, and to make sure the right human values become resident throughout the world.
0: You talked about investing in different types of education past high school, whether that be trade school or community college. I'm a community college graduate myself, and then I transfer to UCLA. How would you support the other alternatives from college? Because four-year universities can be really expensive to a lot of students. Do you see yeah. yourself investing in trade schools or community colleges as president?
1: The program I have for three years, and as a president, I'm most focused on is what I call training for a lifetime. They are those individuals who decide that they are going to work with both their minds and their hands. And what we do is spend less than any developed nation, only 0.001% of our gross domestic product, on training for the labor force. Those that become the wonderful, whether they're the coal miner workers, and all of a sudden they lose their job, they don't get a loan to go to the next step. And so we need training for a lifetime like we do in the military because technology is changing so rapidly. And so when someone loses their job in the military because the F-15 goes out because it's technologically old and the F-22 comes in, we send them to the Air Force Community College, the largest community college in America, for retraining. We need to train and retrain the workforce. That's why we have 11 million people who are not participating in the labor force today. As compared to the mid-90s, because they lost their skills, they need retraining, and 40% of Americans don't even have
0: $400 in order
1: to handle an emergency rather than to learn how to become a MIG welder when they used to be a TIG welder. I commend you for going to the community college because it gets to a question you asked me a little earlier, and, and the time included for complete answer. But we know well, college costs those for that to go to college. Another wonderful cohort, although I'm focused heavily very much on on those who are the workforce, the artisans, uh, uh, like I just spoke about, of our nation. But those who go on and decide that they want to go to college or grad school, when you change a college, 40% 40 of youth all change colleges like you did, but 50% on average of the courses are not accepted by the other college they go to. That costs a lot. And besides that, our government is pay- spending, uh, it's going to make $127 billion of profit off of students and their loans this decade because they have based it historically on the 10 year Treasury bond. And because it's the wrong rate, the government's going to make a profit. We got to stop that nonsense. And finally, what I want to do for the loans is make it automatic and reimbursable, excuse me, automatic and universal. And also grandfather, it that when a student mm-hmm. graduates, they only pay at most 10% of their income to pay off their student loan. So if they don't have a job, they don't pay anything. And after 20 years, it's forgiven. And that's what we need to do. And if you're lower income, it'll only be 5%. And, and so that's how we can handle the student debt. And it's a smart way to do it, but I want to make sure we focus on those individuals during that great recession. The Trump supporter and the Clinton supporter who lost their jobs and no, there was no program there facilitated by the government that even small businesses want because they can't, one third of them can't find the trained workforce to get them going again with the skills they need throughout a lifetime.
0: Looking through your past history, you've butt hands with the Democratic Party a lot. Do you think the regulations that the DNC put forth for the September debate nights is too high as I saw that you haven't qualified are you going to stick in and uh push through even though the qualifications didn't really match what you have
1: well you know I got in what some people consider late although I know my ideas what this nation most needs is very timely but I got in what people consider late because my daughter brain cancer came back which she had at 4 years old and I took care of her and I only ran for politics to pay back my country by running for health care for everyone like we had in the military. When it came back this time, I wasn't going to get in originally, but I did after she got into a safe harbor in June. And I did because this nation most needs someone that believes in people above party, above self, above any special interest, no matter the cost to oneself. So as I told my staff when we got in, I said, look, we're going to aim to be on the fall debates at some time. I said I can't complain about the rules. I landed on this beach from the landing craft, and you don't complain about the rules that happen to be there when you land and cry and go back to the landing craft. You deal with them. But I would make a recommendation to the, for years from now that if you are going to measure at properly support for a candidate. And look at the two criteria that have been established. One of them's polling. That makes sense. How much do they show their support for you? But the other one was money. And whenever you make money a criteria, even in taxes, when you change them, somebody will always find a loophole. And so you can have somebody come along and understandably, and I'm not complaining at all, but somebody will put millions of dollars in, it's happened. And then be able to say i got 130,000 supporters after they pound away with millions of dollars. Does that show support or not? I would argue that my hat's off to those who have accomplished it however they did this time. They were the rules. But let's learn that the Democratic Party is about people. It's not about money. It's about people. And so let's make sure that when you measure support next time, it's how the people want it to be measured not by just having a lot of money be able to say you've got support.
0: Yeah, I saw Tom Steyer. He's just poured a tons of money into Facebook ads, and he almost qualified, but he fell up short. And I totally agree. It seems like he's just buying his way into the next debate, which isn't what the people decide. It's what like his money and his ability to spend that money decides.
1: And if I could take it one more step, though, you know, I ran against my party's desires. I represent nearly, first of all, two to one Republican district, nearly two to one. And I got the second Democrat since the Civil War. But despite a F from the NRA re- on my rating, despite 100 percent voting record from the pro-choice, pro-choice, I got reelected by 20 points, and I didn't spend a penny on a campaign ad. We learned to disagree well, and I, we could do I could stand by my principles but do principle compromise. But, you know, I also ran against my party's desires when Senator Arlen Specter, the senator who had years ago, earlier, humiliated, tried to humiliate Anita Hill, who had brought sexual harassment claims against now Supreme Court uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. And my party, years, decades later, was going to embrace this man. I disagreed. If it was today with the Me Too generation, my party wouldn't have done it. But accountability means doing what's right when it matters. So I ran against my party's desires, beat the senator after he'd become a Democrat, after being a Republican so long. But it came at a cost. And I bring both of those two issues up because I am most running, Jared, to that these wonderful policies you've given me the opportunity to talk about are great. But in order to advance them, we are going to need someone in the White House that can beat Mr. Trump, that can unite this nation because people feel that he is accountable to them and they will trust him even when they disagree well. And someone who can convene the world because of the breadth and depth of experience. I'm that candidate. And that's the reason I am running most, because if we don't unite this country, we will not be able to meet the defining challenges of our time. And that is why when my daughter recovered from her brain cancer, I decided to get in. And why I say, I'm not late. I think I'm timely because that's what Americans most yearn for.
0: A lot of fathers are running, Tim Ryan, Beto O'Rourke, Andrew Yang. How has the campaign, your previous campaigns shaped your relationship with your daughter and just how 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 you value your time?
1: Uh, I've had good training for this because, again, I was in the Navy Yeah. and you go away, you know, you have almost six months working up and then six, seven months overseas. And I was on the ground initially at the beginning of the warhead, Navy's in terrorism. So someone asked me a similar question and said, you make sure that it is love, quality love. And, of course, there's a phone call every morning and every night. But she shares in our experiences, and I didn't get in unless she gave me permission, literally, literally gave me permission. But she watches the evening news every evening. Um, She never misses it, ever since she's been five years old. And she's concerned about what's happening to this country. So even though she's not political, she appreciates the political world because of the damage that's being done now. And supported the idea that to be somebody who would get in, even with sacrifice, with a relationship of close, personal closeness, physical closeness, in order to accomplish what needs to be done to right this ship of America.
0: That was a very beautiful answer. Do you have any last words for the listeners at UCLA Radio?
1: Yes. Um, what I would leave with is a story about the youth of America, which is where you started, Jared. As I said, come aboard that aircraft carrier where there's 500,000 sailors, and I told you I learned from them, and let me give you an example. On a carrier, middle of the night, you know, as we're launching planes, a pilot gets in, and they strap themselves in the plane and then close the canopy, and then they hook up the plane to a catapult. It's a a little sled. And when they push a button, that sled pushes the plane with its engines running into the night. And there's no ride like that in any amusement park, I can tell you that. But sometimes they say, stop. Just as your engines are about, they're about to push the button, and you're ready to go, and the plane's bucking, ready to go. But they need a different plane over Afghanistan because there's been an ambush, and they need different types of fighters over there, not what was going to go up. And so a young man or woman could be from California, could be from Iowa, could be from a red state or blue state, could be Muslim, could be Hispanic, could be white. We, we just don't care. We get them all, and we love them all, and we mull them together. And they come. one of them comes out on that deck in the middle of the night, reaches under the plane where the pilot can't see, and unhooks the plane from the catapult. And because the pilot can't see it but wants to really feel, it's definitely been unhooked because once you turn off your plane, you're still strapped to that catapult, and someone makes a mistake and pushes the button, you're going to go off into the night for a wonderful, but it's your last ride. So that youth doesn't step to the side of the plane and signal the pilot, he or she has done the job. Jared, he walks or she walks in front of that plane and looks up at the pilot and raises their left hand with a little signal. And then that youth of America doesn't move until that pilot has shut off his or her engines, opened up the canopy of the plane, and gotten safely on deck. And that youth has said everything this nation most yearns for and most wants. Go ahead, that young man or woman has said. Pilot, you can trust me, not for my word, but for my deeds. Because if I made a mistake, and suddenly after you turn off your engines, Because of my mistake, you suddenly start going forward to your death. You're going right through me, and I'm going overboard with you to my own. Jared, I have met hardly anyone who believes that anyone in Washington, D.C. would ever stand in front of that plane for them. I am running the President of the United States to stand in front of that plane for Americans, all Americans. So that once again, we can have a president that the people will trust because they know that he will always be accountable to them, even when disagreeing well, above party, above self, above any special interest. And with that, we can then achieve the policies we need abroad and at home to meet the challenges of our time. And that's what youth mean to me. They are teaching this nation what accountability is needed today in its president. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That was Joe Sestak. You could find him at joesestak.com.